Friends, let's open in our Bibles to Hebrews chapter 9. We're going to look at Hebrews chapter 9. I'm going to read the first half of this chapter. You get the sense as we're walking through the book of Hebrews, and now we're nine chapters deep into this thing, that the the writer to the Hebrews understands that there's so much more than has been already said about the gospel and about what Jesus has done, right? The gospel is like this multifaceted diamond that if you keep turning it over and over in your hands, you're going to see something new and different in what Jesus has done in his life and in his death and in his resurrection and in his ascension and in his mediation at the right hand of God. The more you study this thing and the more you turn it over in your hand, the more there is to see. If we get stuck in a rut talking about Jesus dying on the cross for our sins so that we can go to heaven, that's on us. That's not on the writer to the Hebrews because he wants to show us so much more. He's going to do that today through explaining the dimensions of the tabernacle. All right, we're going to dive in chapter 9 of Hebrews and I'm going to read the first 14 verses. Now even the first covenant had regulations for worship and an earthly place of holiness. For a tent was prepared, the first section in which were the lampstand and the table and the bread of the presence, it is called the holy place. Behind the second curtain, behind the second curtain was a second section called the most holy place, having the golden altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant covered on all sides with gold, in which was a golden urn holding the manna, and Aaron's staff that budded in the tablets of the covenant. Above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. Of all these things, we cannot now speak in detail. These preparations having thus been made, the priests go regularly into the first section, performing their ritual duties, but into the second only the high priest goes, and he but once a year, and not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and the unintentional sins of the people. By this, the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy place is not yet opened as long as the first section is standing, which is symbolic for the present age. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper, but deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of reformation. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the sprinkling of defiled persons with the blood of goats and bulls and with the ashers of a heifer sanctifies for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Let's pray together. Jesus, would you allow us to see this face of the gospel? Would you allow us to expand our understanding of what it is you have won in the cross? Would we apply it and enjoy it in our lives? We ask in your precious name. Amen. Well, friends, you heard this word come up a few times. We're going to talk today about our conscience. What is a conscience? What is it in the life of a believer? Well, Cambridge Dictionary defines a conscience as 
the feeling that you should know and do what is right and should avoid doing what is wrong. Simple enough. That's how we understand a conscience. And then Cambridge Dictionary, as they usually do, they give a sentence so that you can see it working in a sentence and how you better understand it. And Cambridge says this, I have a guilty conscience for spending so little time with my kids. And it's like, wow, thank you, Cambridge Dictionary, for pricking my conscience while I'm reading a definition of conscience. But I guess maybe that's the best way to define this thing and understand it is to feel it in your own mind and heart as you read it. With regards to our conscience and what is true of every single human being, we're going to chew on that mysterious, wonderful, final line of our passage, verse 14, that the blood of Jesus will purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. What a fantastic line. We don't have access to that line. We can't understand that line and apply it until we understand the barrier that keeps us from that. And so first we're going to understand this barrier in the first 10 verses. And then finally, we're going to see the access that we have in Christ, which happens in the last four verses, 11 to 14. Let's talk about this this barrier between us and full fellowship with God with respect to our conscience. Verses 1 through 10 is basically a long description of the Old Testament tabernacle and the priests and what they do. So we read about the tent and the lampstand and the showbread and the incense and the curtain and the ark and the cherubim. And I like how the writer to the Hebrews in the middle of all this says in verse 5 of these things we cannot now speak in detail because it sure feels like we got a whole lot of detail with respect to the tabernacle. I mean, this is more that I've heard about the tabernacle than I have in a long, long time with my friends. But he thinks that he's rushing along because he has a grander purpose in mind, right? He can't spend a lot of time with the details and what's there in the tabernacle because he has a much bigger picture for us to see. And that is from the time of Moses when the tabernacle was given till the time of Jesus, the tabernacle, which becomes the temple, has succeeded in doing exactly what God intended it to do. The tabernacle has accomplished its discipling work and it has taught the world exactly what God instructed it would teach the world. Let's walk through this very briefly and understand what it is that we are to learn from the tabernacle. Let's get a refresher. It's been a while since we've thought about the tabernacle, since we've built a Lego replica of the tabernacle with our kids, because as Cambridge told us, we spend so little time with our kids. Let's get a refresher on what this thing is. The people, they leave uh, Egypt under slavery. They experience the exodus, the liberation of God. He leads them to Mount Sinai. He gives them the Ten Commandments. And in giving the Ten Commandments, he also gives them instructions for the tabernacle. It's going to be a tent. It's going to be a meeting place in which God himself, though he dwells in all the universe, he's going to dwell very specifically and visibly in Israel's midst so that they would remember that God dwells with them and they are his people. And anyone in the watching world who saw this would also see that God dwells in Israel and he could be known in Israel. That's what the tabernacle, the tent is for. The tent later becomes a temple in Jerusalem, but those can be used synonymously in the New Testament. 
The tabernacle is basically three parts. It's got this outer court that's all curtains. It's an open air thing. You could walk through a curtain and into this uh, tabernacle court, and that's where you would see the altar. And this is where the sacrifices are given. And then on the west end of this court, you see a freestanding structure that's also covered with goat skins, and it's made in two parts. The first is the holy place. You could pass through a curtain into the holy place, and he describes all the things that you're going to see there. You're going to see the showbread, and you're going to see the incense, and you're going to see the candles, and the priests would go in there pretty much every single day to do acts of worship before the Lord. But if you're in the holy place, you would see that there's another curtain, and through that curtain gets you to the most holy place. Now that is simply a very small room. It's 15 feet by 15 feet by 15 feet tall. It's a perfect cube. And in the center of this room is the Ark of the Covenant, which we had heard about when we studied 1 Samuel. And that contains the elements that we hear about in Hebrews 9. And over this ark is a lid. And on top of the lid are these images of two cherubim, two angels that are facing each other. And between these angels, that place is called the mercy seat. And that is where God visibly shows his glory. Now it's in through the temple court, through the holy place, and into the most holy place. The writer to the Hebrews says that it is only the high priest who can go, and he can only do this once a year on the Day of Atonement, and he can only go only on the Day of Atonement if he has the appropriate sacrifices both for his own sin and the sin of the people. Now you get that entire lay of the land, you understand this structure, you understand the curtains that are dividing and separating the visible dwelling place of God, and this is what we hear in verse 8. Look at this. By this, the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places is not yet opened. Now I just want to make a side note here, because I want to see if we all caught what the writer to the Hebrews is saying, because there's different ways we handle our Old Testament, right? There are some of us who think about the Old Testament maybe as God's salvation by works, and the New Testament is God's salvation by grace, and so after the time of Jesus, we can kind of part with our Old Testament and focus on our New Testament, There are some of us who think that the Old Testament was kind of God's salvation A plan through Israel, and that didn't work out too well, and so he scrapped that, and now we have salvation B plan, which is through Jesus, and that's working really well, so we can still kind of chuck our Old Testament, and the writer to the Hebrews could not disagree more. He says this is what the Holy Spirit is doing. He's taking the tabernacle and he's using that and the law and the priesthood and they're acting like a guide. They're acting like a tutor. They're acting like a teacher. They're acting like a signpost. They're acting like a highway that leads all humanity in one direction. If you were a child born into the membership of Israel and you grew up around the tabernacle, or if you were a Gentile child who was grafted into the membership of Israel, you would have seen this tabernacle liturgy year after year after year. Once a year, 
on Yom Kippur, that is the Day of Atonement, you and all your family would gather outside the tabernacle. This was a special day in which all Israel assembled. You would be there with your family and extended family and people from your tribe that you hadn't seen in a long time. And people from other tribes would gather and a mass of people would stand there. And you would watch outside the tabernacle as the priests brought a bull and two goats forward to the curtain of the tabernacle. And as they did this, your parents would lean over and they would say to you, the reason these sacrifices are being brought, the reason we're here is because of our sin. This is the day that God covers and atones for our sin. And then as you watched, you would learn from your parents that only the high priest on this day could even take those sacrifices into the temple court where priests usually could go, but they couldn't go on this day. He would go alone, and on that altar, he would slaughter the bull and one of the goats. And he would take the blood from those offerings, and he would sprinkle it on the altar. And then he would pass through the curtain into the holy place, and he would sprinkle the blood on the elements of the holy place. And then finally, he would pass through that final curtain in which he had not seen for an entire year, and he would sprinkle the blood on the Ark of the Covenant. This wild, sensory, bloody scene would do its work year after year in your childhood. You would understand from watching this thing that God is holy, that sin is costly, and that there are still some things that even a sacrifice cannot clean. The tabernacle was doing its discipling work in you and in your family and in your tribe and in this nation and all the nations who came to observe this thing because a worshiper would begin to learn in that context year after year that for as great as the barrier is between humanity and the most holy place, the curtain is there, the guards are there, no one can enter that place as great as that barrier is, it pales in comparison to the barrier that every single worshiper would walk home with year after year after year. That barrier is the barrier of a guilty conscience. To be a human being, to experience this life, is to know the sickening pang of guilt and the dull ache of shame. Every single person in this room, whether you're a Christian or not, you understand the words guilt and shame. You have experienced that viscerally in your heart and in your life, and it's driven you to do wild and crazy things. We don't have to defend the idea of shame and guilt. Mark Twain once said that a clear conscience is a sure sign of a bad memory. If you don't have a guilty conscience, it's because you're forgetting what you've done. But I think most of us have better memories with respect to our sin than we'd like. Most of us know our sin all too well. My professor once described a guilty conscience as a tortured inner voice of condemnation and death. We experience that, we feel that, and this is what verse 9 tells us about the sacrificial system. We don't understand this entirely, but it says... The system could not 
perfect the conscience of the worshiper. We do this, we experience this, we see this act of worship, but it could not fully perfect the conscience of a worshiper. I still experience this pang of guilt. King David, he lamented of this, right? In his great confessional psalm when he cried out to the Lord and he said, for you do not delight in sacrifice or I would give it. I feel guilty. And if this were as simple as running to the store and buying an animal and sacrificing it and I could be free from that, I would do it, but you don't delight in that in and of itself. A sacrifice had to be offered year after year, and it was an annual reminder of sin that bars us from full fellowship with God. We could no sooner push past the Levite guards into the tabernacle court and through the holy place and into the most holy place and live to tell about that experience, then we can push past as a human being this veil of a guilty conscience and enjoy this full fellowship with God. The barrier between us and God is great indeed. And the writer to the Hebrews wants to tell us that Jesus is greater than that barrier, that he offers something that supersedes what bars us from access to God. Verses 11 through 12 tell us how Jesus breaks down the double barrier of the curtain and our conscience to win us fellowship with God and freedom from guilt. This is what he says very briefly. Verse 11, the writer to the Hebrews has said this a hundred times already. Jesus is the better priest of a better covenant in a better tent. Verse 12, he enters the presence of God. Think about the high priest. And he doesn't bring blood of a bull and a goat. He brings his own blood to make a once for all sacrifice, which secures an eternal redemption. If you're looking for your next tattoo, Think about this phrase in verse 12. He secures by his own blood an eternal redemption. Then verses 13 and 14, as such, our conscience is made pure to serve the living God. Now that's what we want to grab a hold of right now and say, what exactly does that mean? He's saying that in some way in the Old Testament, a worshiper couldn't have their conscience perfected, but somehow in this new covenant, as a new covenant worshiper in the New Testament after Jesus, we can have access to a perfected conscience. What does that mean? What does that win for us? Does it mean that my conscience will never bother me again? Does it mean that when I become a Christian, I won't experience guilt and shame? Is that what we're talking about here? And the answer is no. A purified conscience does not mean we won't experience these things because God says that his Holy Spirit lives in us now that we're a believer and he gives us grief over our sin. When we sin, we feel guilty and we feel shameful and we have grief over our sin because it's playing dissonance with the Holy Spirit who lives in us. And the New Testament says that's a good thing. That's a gift from God. Your guilt in this context is an absolute gift from God. What is emphatically not from God for a New Testament believer is ongoing, low-grade, unforgivable guilt or shame. Now, I want to illustrate what we're talking about here when we understand these things. A healthy human being 
is going to have nerve endings, active nerve endings. When we as a human being, we touch something that's hot or that's sharp, we're going to experience pain. And that's a good thing, right? That's how our bodies are designed to work. So if you were to schedule an appointment with your doctor and you go in and you say, doctor, I got to tell you, I'm experiencing something. Every time I make dinner and I'm cooking something and I touch the hot frying pan, I just get this burning sensation in my hand. Your doctor is going to say, that's wonderful. I'm so glad to hear it. That's great news. Your body is doing exactly what it's designed to do. Now you make the same appointment with the same doctor and you tell your doctor, you know what? I got to tell you, every time I wake up in the morning, all day, every day, I just have this burning sensation in my hand that I can't place and I don't know where it comes from. Your doctor is going to say, that's a problem. Something wrong is happening to you and we need to take a look at how we can fix that. So it is with the Christian and our conscience. You pull aside a friend and you talk to that friend and you say, I got to tell you, I got to confess to you. Every time I put myself before somebody else, I mean, every time I speak a harsh word to someone, every time I don't get my way and then I become passive aggressive towards them, every time I make sure I serve my interests first before theirs, I just feel awful about it and I feel lousy. Your friend is going to say to you, that's wonderful. That's great news. I love to hear that. That means that God's spirit is in you and you are creating dissonance in your life and he is pointing you to confess that and to return to Jesus. Your, your Christian life is operating exactly as God intended it. But if you meet with that same friend and you say to them, look, I'm experiencing this just lowness all the time. I feel lousy. I feel guilty. I feel shameful. I feel that in some measure, God must be disappointed with me or with my Christian life. And I can't place why I feel that way. And I can't confess it because I can't put my finger on anything. Well, then your friend is going to say, there's something deeply wrong with your Christian life. The voice that you're hearing in your mind, that is not from God. We need to understand that not all guilt comes from the same place. Not all guilt is made the same. Not all of it comes from the same place. Not all of it is good guilt. And I get that both from our passage in Hebrews 9 and also from passages like 2 Corinthians 7.10. Write that reference down. 2 Corinthians 7.10 is probably my most often referenced verse in the Bible when I'm sitting down and counseling another person with respect to our conscience and feeling of guilt. Now, no matter how often I reference that passage, I usually say 1 Corinthians 7.10, which leads into that verse with, it's better to marry than burn with passion. So when I'm sitting with somebody, I mean, I turn there and I share that, and that's always good for people to hear. And then we get to 2 Corinthians 7.10, which is the verse that I'm trying to get us to, And that, in that verse, Paul distinguishes between godly grief and worldly grief. You understand that there's a difference between those two things? You feel grief and guilt, and they might not be the same thing. Godly grief leads to repentance without regret. Isn't that a marvelous line, to repent of something and to cease to regret or to feel the guilt and shame over that thing? That's godly grief. Worldly grief is different. It can't end It can't be repented of because it's not between you and God. And it is a grief that leads to death. 
Friend, this is a diamond facet of what Jesus has won in the gospel. When we feel guilt or shame, we run to Jesus, we confess this thing, and he perfects the conscience of the worshiper to serve the living God. If that doesn't happen, if we come and we confess something to God and we still feel shame and guilt over that thing, now I'm not saying we still feel the consequences of our sin because even as New Testament believers, when we sin, we create collateral damage in our sin, right? We break relationships with other people and with ourselves and with the world around us. We will experience consequences of our sin. But if we come and confess our sin and don't experience freedom from guilt or shame of that sin, or we feel this low-grade, ongoing, unforgivable guilt or shame, those feelings are not from God. Those feelings might be from a faulty conscience. They might be from a devouring enemy. But those feelings of guilt and shame are not from God. I want to close with this thought. You have the great love chapter, of course, 1 Corinthians 13, that has that enormous line in it, which I love, that love keeps no record of wrongs. You want to know what love is? It's something that does not tally. It does not keep a record of wrongdoing. We just heard something similar last week in Hebrews 8, which quotes Jeremiah 31, which says in this covenant with God, I will remember their sins no more. God in the gospel has absolutely no record or remembrance of your wrongdoing. If your conscience keeps a record of your wrongdoing that you have confessed to God, then that's on you. If your friend or your neighbor or your spouse, they keep a record of wrongdoing against you, then that's on them. But with respect to God, you have been washed You have been cleaned. You have been covered. Your sin has been removed as far as the east is from the west and remembered no more. There is no sheet in heaven that keeps a record of your wrongs. You stand clean and perfected before the living God. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, even now it's hard for me to believe that and I hear the voice of the evil one who wants me to make a hundred caveats to that promise. What if this happens and what if that happens and what if our confession is not strong enough and what if our faith is not bold enough and what if we really don't reach Jesus with our repentance but we're just kind of repenting to the rafters or to our friends anonymously. Father, I pray that you would quiet busy hearts and speak the truth of your gospel, that it was never about our faith, and it was never about our boldness, and it was never about the caliber of our confession, but it is only about Jesus who by the strength of his own blood has entered through the curtain into your presence to secure an eternal redemption. Let us experience now, let us experience tomorrow what it looks like to worship you with a perfected conscience. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.